think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 89 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 90th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. Jeez, we're really getting getting close to 100, eh? We, we are crawling ever closer to, to 100. It, it's felt sort of sort of asymptotic. Like, I feel like we're never going to quite get there. <laughs> yes. Our next episode will be in four months. After that, it'll be two years. Alas. Um, and it, go ahead. Oh, no. This, this is all you. No, this okay. is yes. the, the entry. This so, is your territory. As, uh, as people can probably surmise, we, we continue to be... Um, Recording separately at our, our respective homes uh, on this sunny Ottawa afternoon. Um, and yeah, obviously, I mean, there, there's one story in the country right now, uh, much as there was in the month of February. Uh, but this one is going to be the, the story that is with us for probably the foreseeable future, uh, as, as we were told today um, by the Prime Minister. So... Yeah, let's uh, let's launch into it. I mean, for you're probably getting coronavirus news from every single podcast and TV show, etc. You are watching. I actually um, don't listen to podcasts that are about coronavirus shit anymore. Yeah, really. So I, yeah, I completely avoid them. Yeah, like the what about like the daily? Do you listen to that? I've completely stopped listening to the daily. I mean, I don't blame you, but uh, I I just sort of hear it sort of partially in the mornings, but. Uh, no, all of sort of the international news, the podcast, completely out of the feed right now. Huh, interesting. Okay, well, I guess for, for most people uh, who are still listening to the news, that is likely a lot of what you're getting. So we kind of want to talk around the outside of it. Um, though maybe we can talk about the modeling stuff today if you're at all interested, but we, we, we certainly don't have to. Um, but the, the big thing we want to talk about is over the last couple of weeks, uh, we sort of spoke right around when Parliament was coming back and... Uh, to pass emergency legislation and there was a big old kerfuffle about um overreach on the part of the government uh in that legislation uh we are now on the cusp of the house coming back again laurent the the government needed those powers well of course i mean and the opposition is so unreasonable by negotiating uh (laughs) yes thanks for the bow tie dipshit uh Yes, so the they, House... they, weren't con- they weren't unconstitutional at all. No, not a bit. Uh, so the House is coming back again to pass uh, announced changes to the wage subsidy program, uh, which we don't really want to get too in the weeds on uh, because it's you know we we can talk technicalities of government programs all day, and certainly we have some interest in doing this, but uh, not today. Uh, but what we want to talk about is sort of the, the the deep state aspects of this in terms of the administrative capacity of the Canadian government to get dollars to people. Um, so what we learned uh, around the CERB and the new wage subsidy is that the unemployment system is not particularly good at doing this. It's just, this is really not what it was built for at all. So they had to kind of figure out, um, you know, functionally overnight in government terms, how to get uh, money to people in a reasonably swift way. Uh, And Chan, do you want to launch into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we've seen iterations of government sort of programming uh, offerings from the first billion dollar package through to the whatever, I'd say we're on like, 4.2 or something like that yeah i mean Um, it's still hilariously uh just 
comical in hindsight that the the one billion dollar package is called the coronavirus response package. <laughs> it's like, well, dust done and dusted. Let's call her a day on this. It seems like the government is, uh, I mean, sort of has the broad strokes of what they want to do right now. They're still looking at, um, I think, sectoral packages. Yeah, aviation, I mean, oil and gas, tourism and hospitality have been cited among the yeah. top of. I mean, every day when the prime minister gets up and talks, he talks about a three-pronged approach, which is the CERB, uh, the wage Serb. Subs- let's just let's just call it the Serb. The Serb. Uh, I prefer. The sounds Cur- like a cool badass character from a guy Richie it, movie. It sounds like a guy who has a, a facial scar of some sort. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, somewhat involved in the the diamond theft industry. <laughs> Ten- however, tangentially. Um, the emergency wage subsidy, which doesn't really turn into a uh, Balkan uh, nationality easily it, in its acronym. It was. The SUS. Uh, and then the loan packages through uh, Export Development and the Business Development Bank. Um, yes. So those are sort of the three the three prongs. Um, but yes, as you say, there are also uh, sectoral ones sort of being figured out. But that's kind of like the, the rough and ready skeleton of the approach. So, in sort of the iterations, I I think the government had initially oriented a lot more of their work around the EI system, and then quickly pivoted for it to be more what's now called the CERB, but the CERB running off of uh, CRA's uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there is a non-trivial reason for that, as I think Iveson... Was it Iveson column recently that was talking about it? It was talking about how I think the government was concerned about the technical capacity of the EI system to be doing uh, the things it needed to be doing so that they pivoted to the CRA system. Mm-hmm. Um, he notes that the EI system runs on uh, Kobold, which is a not, uh, not small... Kobold. Not Kobold. <laughs> okay, I which see you're launching a, into a, it. Okay. A small industrial industrious uh, humanoid creature. Um, or Kobold, the probing, la- the programming language. Kobold uh, is the the Kobold. Program. Yeah, it's also a um, star around which there are, are twelve planets uh, where they fought the Cylons. Which is yes, <laughs> very good. Um, which has also come up in reference to EI programs in the United States, the state level programs being run off of sort of this ancient architecture as well. Uh, so the government very quickly pivoted over to CRA, and when CRA officials were testifying, I think in the FINA, so Finance Standing Committee on Finance, um, they were talking up to a large extent the capacity of their systems in advance of the CERB going live. And I'm trying to remember the exact number. I think one of the officials said the CRA system could handle something like a, a million phone calls a day or something insane. Um and they were also quick to reassure the MPs that the, you know, in, in the past few years, there have been a lot of stories about the CRA. The CRA has been audited by the Auditor General. Um, and yeah, they never got a brutal one last the, year. <laughs> yes. And none of these have ever spoken particularly strongly about the CRA's capacity. Um, but the CRA officials were sort of adamant that they now, like, they had new structures in place and they now had the capacity. 
So that seems to be how we've winded up with the CERB being administered by the CRA, which to date seems to be going reasonably yeah. well. Well, it's also the CRA has people's direct deposit information, critically, right? Like, they are yes. the, the place where most people sort of financially interface with the government. Yes, and, you know, do so on an annual basis. A lot of people are familiar with it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so the CRA has sort of... Un- you know, not the department you would typically think of in a, in a crisis like this has become sort of central to the government's approach. And CRA officials are right up beside uh, finance officials and ESCC officials uh, in terms of fielding a lot of the critical questions on how a lot of this is being delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of just as, as a footnote, the Minister of Revenue or of uh, Nash- Revenue Canada... Yeah. National Review? Yeah, National that's Review, how it's styled. Yeah. Yes. Um, Diane Le Boutillier, who is a rural Quebec member of parliament, has been absolutely nowhere to be found. Oh, yeah, no. Like, um, she's not at the briefings. Like, absolutely nowhere. Yeah. What's... I mean, it's it's worth noting that the usually the minister of CRA doesn't really do anything. Um, it's, good good it's work technically, if you can get it. Yeah, it's, it's technically a portfolio. I mean, you're getting the pay bump. Um, but you don't put your strongest performers in Minister of CRA. It's largely a department that sort of administers itself. Um, there isn't a lot of political decision-making to be made at the CRA, um, save for perhaps auditing charities. <laughs> yes. We're going um, after tax havens, et cetera, on the other yeah, side. Yeah, like those are the only two files that really come up uh, or that come to mind in like the CRA in recent political history is that. So suffice it to say, the minister there likely doesn't ever do much, uh, which perhaps explains the disconnect right now between a CRA that is being leaned on incredibly heavily and a minister that is absolutely nowhere to be seen. Yeah. And it's funny because like we have heard from uh, ESDC's minister on the unemployment side, uh, Carl Qualtro is, is, sort of speaking for CRA by saying, you know, we've processed this many claims uh, through the CRB, et cetera. So they've sort of, and she's, I think, someone who's actually had a upwards trajectory in the government basically since the start, starting in a very junior role as like Minister of Disability and Sport and is now uh, in Geneva Duclos' old job at ESDC. So, um, yes. And is taking, and is sort of muscled out on the CRA turf as, as Etienne has alluded to here. So. Yeah, and like we've seen, uh, I mean, the briefings have been led by sort of a coterie of ministers, but among them, um, the Green Jesus of Montreal, <laughs> um, who's been cutting his hair by himself for a lot longer than any of us, uh, Gilbeau, as well as Melanie Jolie, if I'm not mistaken, has been among them as well, who are two ministers you likely wouldn't have had on your bingo sheet in advance of all of this, as sort of leading the briefing I mean, slash response Jolie, Gilbo's been at the minister's briefing a couple of times um Jolie hasn't once to my knowledge but is playing, okay yeah maybe I, I haven't watched them all uh I've <laughs> seen her be lead on some elements of uh the media response yeah no I wasn't, they're, they're I wasn't sure more if she visible. was in the... they're more visible in Quebec media for obvious reasons yeah oh well save for the Quebec CRA minister yes I I don't really know what's going on with her I mean, she might be, but I don't think so. Um, so, 
everything we've been talking about has been a question of you know IT infrastructure, technical capacity, administrative capacity of these uh, various departments, and it's very clearly playing a substantial role in what is administrable, what the government is deeming administrable, and what's not. And it's been the subtext, it seems, to a lot of their um, responses about you know what can be done quickly and efficiently. Yes. Um, but most of that conversation is really on Twitter rather than being presented at the briefings or by the prime minister. There hasn't been sort of an explicit recognition of this. And there doesn't seem to be... Uh, you know, forthcoming responses from the political level about these challenges. It seems to just be buried. And instead you have economists saying like, you know, we worked at finance once upon a time. We're pretty sure this is what the challenge is, but no one's sort of forthcoming and saying that. Yes. Which is not a great scenario to be in. Um, and I, I wish we had a clearer angle into what exactly are the technical and logistical difficulties in a lot of this stuff. If, if for no other reason than, like, I think coming out of this, I think we, we have all learned to appreciate the value of knowing the answer to the question, how fast can the government cut checks to people uh, if they need to, right? Like, I think that, that the the argument for, for stress testing government administrative capacity is not exactly a uh, sexy political sell, but it does seem to be something you, you want to know the answer to in a pinch. Yes, and it seems like it's, I mean... You're, you never, in in times of regular sort of status quo, people aren't inclined to invest in some of these back-end things when, when they need to be, right? Yeah. Um, and then you don't have the capacity to lean on them during the crisis when you need to be able to lean on them, I, I think is sort of a classic paradox of good administration, that maintenance isn't sexy, building new projects is sexy. Yeah. Um, and, and to an extent, that seems to be one of the challenges here, but it's going largely unspoken at this point. Yeah, no, because I mean, no, no one ever wants to put like, we're going to spend a billion dollars like making the computers run good. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, people want to spend like ministers want to spend a billion dollars doing something that'll be a little more in the papers, right? Like for, you know, perfectly understandable political reasons. Um, but yes, it does have the unfortunate side effect of uh, disincentivizing uh in these sort of longer term things. Um, let's talk about uh, other, other parts of the administration of government. So across the government, I mean, we've alluded to uh, officials working from home, um, which I think is having ramifications in terms of delaying all sorts of things that mm-hmm. were, you know, the, the government was on a pretty tight schedule. It had a platform it wanted to do. There have been, deliverable dates attached to various elements of its platform. I think it's safe to say a lot of that is on hold. There were various regulations, if you'll recall, at the end of the last government, um, or at the end of, what year was it, 2019, uh, that parliament, the government had pushed through a whole bunch of bills and kickstarted a whole bunch of regulatory processes, I think with an eye to um, draft and finalizing regulations for about this time. But ostensibly, a lot of that is going to be put on hold because, you know, there's, you're not <laughs> able to um, have people in the office working together as effectively, but you're also not able to um, correspond with stakeholders and go back and forth in the way that you can during sort of normal operations. So naturally, a lot of that is being delayed. Um, within departments, I think there's a lot of uh, remote working or telecommuting 
technical challenges. Uh, VPN capacity has come up time and time again as as one of the biggest. I know there's like some departments where if you're not on the VPN, you can't use Wi-Fi on your laptop. And so you have to be on the VPN to use the Wi-Fi. And it's like, that's not an effective use of VPN capacity. So like none of this was anticipated in in, in those senses. And uh, IT departments across government are having to sort of reorient themselves. There have been back and forth on whether or not Zoom is... (laughs) Uh, an appropriate tool of government. Well, Boris Johnson has perhaps had a cabinet meeting on Zoom. I'm not sure uh, Treasury Board has quite uh, settled on allowing the use of the program. Um, so there is a lot of technical challenges there that I think we're not well considered in advance that the government is obviously having to scramble for. Yeah, I mean, like, at, at no point is there the question of, like, we are going to have to, in the next two weeks, have 90 eight percent of the public service work from home right like it just was not in the cards uh and I, I, listeners of our last episode will will perhaps ask maybe it should have been but like it was clearly not in the more secure departments i think the amount of work that can be done period is very low um government it does not lend itself to doing let's say secret level and above work remotely um, so anything that's, you know, national security is probably being run via skeleton crew for the most part. Yeah. And, that, um, and that's a crew of, of people, just a small one, just to be clear with our listeners. Yes. Not a crew of skeletons. Indeed. <laughs> well, we were talking about kobolds earlier, so. Um, is likely very limited. So like the administ, like, yeah, I mean, this won't come as a surprise to anyone, but it's just the tangible ways in which it's happening in which government operation is being limited by this um mirroring the same things we're seeing in sort of public sector um or sorry private sector um but one area you've had particular let's say friction with has been on the access to information act side yes um because i know you are regularly submitting your access to information act requests yeah i'm probably a top 10 percent uh a tip user do you get like a, a plaque or has, Sadly, has there been any? No, I think they, they just basically, there are a lot of rude post-it notes sent around the office because they know that uh, I can't be uh, <laughs> mentioned in emails. Um, no, so a lot of departments a couple weeks ago um, sent around emails to people who had submitted a request basically saying like, given our reduced capacity, we are placing requests on hold. Uh, if you look at the Access Information Act, there's no part of it that says you can place requests on hold or in abeyance or whatever other artful term you want to use to say we're not going to do this right now uh there are provisions for taking extensions uh that have to do with um the difficulty or feasibleness of interrupting or completing the request without interrupting the normal function of the department of having to do consultations with third parties etc um staffing challenges is actually not one of the acceptable reasons to take an extension though i certainly think a lot of people right now are going to be a little more lenient with regard to making complaints to the information commissioner about this kind of thing but there was a push to do a you know frankly illegal and you know legally unwarranted novel mechanism of just basically saying like we're gonna freeze them uh which people responded to i think uh quite vociferously and they basically i i sent a a quite tersely worded email uh to that effect that i was not going to accept 
a request being placed on hold. And I was uh, I was told that the email informing me that that was the case had been sent in error. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> yes, of which was amusing. Like, yeah, yes, I'm sure. Another department, uh, I got an email back from as well, and they said, "Oh, we're really sorry that we sent you that message only in English instead of in both official languages," <laughs> which is also kind of funny. Um, but yes, it seems like there are significant IT challenges with um, using the software they need to do to do redactions as well as people having access to emails, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, like, I think there are totally legitimate things there that prevent people from doing their jobs to the utmost, and, like, I'm very sympathetic to that. As I said, like, I'm not planning on complaining to the, the information commissioner about any delays over this that are, you know, within reason. Uh, but at the same time, like, accountability mechanisms-wise, like, the public doesn't actually have a lot right now. Like, the government has pretty much a complete monopoly on information flow in that it basically only has accountability via questions at press conferences, uh, which is, like, it's something, but there's no regular question period from legislators. There's no... There's a a non-functioning access information um, service. And order paper questions, which are the other, you know, method that we've discussed a lot on the show, how, how opposition can do its job, uh, is also pretty much on hold because their only responses are only tabled in the House sets and the House is only very rarely sitting right now. And uh, routine proceedings need to happen uh, when the House is sitting for them to in be tabled table in the House. The so, well, there's backdoor tabling. There are, but, yeah. um, but it is... Uncommon. Perhaps not scheduled in these circumstances. Indeed. Yeah, yeah I, I think the last time Parliament sat for the, the CERB and everything, uh, there was actually no routine proceedings that day. Mm. Uh, so it impeded the tabling of those things. So we will see what happens uh, next time around. Um, but yes, all that to say that like we actually need accountability uh, and don't really have it, which is concerning in a time when like I think you know, everyone wants the government to succeed. Um like that that's not really in question but the question is like we actually need to know that it's doing its job to the utmost and like i think they've already gotten you know reasonable feedback from opposition about various things um and like the public has a right to just know how things are going and has a right to have accountability expressed you know through the legislative functions that we have as well as the sort of public information gathering functions we have I just want to read briefly from um, uh, the information commissioner on April 2nd uh, posted a statement about excess information in extraordinary times, which I will I will read partially from because it's quite long. Uh, in these extraordinary times, it is understandable that our collective focus as a society is on existential matters of public health and security. We all acknowledge the need for our leaders and decision makers to be able to react quickly to events and make timely decisions in the best interests of Canadians. In such circumstances, access information and information management may not currently be top of mind within government institutions, where day-to-day work is focused on rapid decision-making and delivering on issues of prime importance, such as public health and essential financial support to Canadians, among other things. Nevertheless, if the government is to inspire the confidence in Canadians that will be required to successfully navigate this challenging period as a nation, timely decision-making and the proper documentation of both the decisions and any resulting actions must go hand-in-hand. So they're really concerned. I mean... Duclos used uh, the metaphor of of flying a plane and trying to get it to land here and having to build an engine at the same time. Uh, Mm -hmm. The information commissioner sort of grabs onto that metaphor and says, uh, we cannot forget to ensure that the in-flight data recorder is functioning correctly. Um, So 
we will want good answers about what decisions were made when and for what reasons at the end of the day on all this. Um, so I just I, I hope that 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 there will be a focus on that and that we are able to move into a more normal situation with regard to public accountability. Uh, the other big story with public accountability is actually uh, from the health committee. Uh, astute listeners may remember that the health committee met in February at one point uh, to get a briefing about uh, COVID-19 from um, the public chief public health officer, Teresa Tam. And, Which yeah, was described as a total shit show. It, it was indeed. And they uh, asked for a bunch of documents from public health. Uh, CTV reported uh, earlier this week that uh, they had had a bunch of redactions in the uh, the uh, documents that they gave to the health committee, uh, which is a big no-no because they're not being given under the Access Information Act. They're being given to Parliament. Um, so that's a big deal, and presumably there will be some form of recourse to privilege. Um, I think the the parliamentary law clerk was, was apparently... Uh, has already apparently given them a piece of his mind about this. Uh, yeah, because there. So Parliament has the supreme authority to request documents from virtually anywhere. Um, like it can do private businesses. There's an example of this of the UK Parliament requesting Facebook. <laughs> yeah, and they got the 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 armed guard to go get stuff from a guy's hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so well, and our had, own ethics like, committee uh, also requested documents from uh, a private company in the last couple of years during yeah, this like, big uh, Cambridge Analytica thing. It, like the, it, it's hard to emphasize how supreme this power is in terms of requesting like documents physically in Canada. Basically, is like the only restriction. Indeed. Um, so when Parliament or a parliamentary committee using that authority makes that request. You don't get to decide what you redact, even if you're a Department of Government. No, in fact, the, that's yeah, sort of they were instructed counterintuitive that yes. you're supposed to be holding the executive to account. Yes, the executive via the deputy minister or whoever doesn't get to say, "Well, this will damage parliament uh, interprovincial relationships," so yes. we're going to redact all this information. They from were you. instructed in no uncertain terms to give it in an unredacted format, and that then the law clerk would redact what was private inf- private personal information, basically. Yeah, and it seems like the government being more caught wanted to be cautious about it and wanted to say no, 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 no we're we're going to censor it anyway. Which, oof, like just especially in the time of crisis. Like one of the arguments initially heard in the uh, in the Hessa meeting was like, oh, this is going to be so onerous on uh, the health department in time of crisis, and the health department was like. All right, we got all the files together. Let's go through all of them very carefully and redact <laughs> all of the yeah. things we don't want them because it's a time of crisis and we can't damage interprovincial relationships. I'm saying that entirely tongue-in-cheek. Yes. So um, actually, one point about interprovincial relationships here is I actually think that there is like a somewhat damaging reticence to be publicly critical of the work any other level of government is doing on the part of provinces and the federal government. Um, so there was a very telling moment today in the, the, the briefing on modeling when, um, Dr. Tam was asked, what do you think about Ontario's sort of inability mm, to get yeah. his butt in gear on testing? And she kind of came back with this very diplomatic response, uh, which like, I don't know if it really is the best thing for the public health, our, our chief public health officer to give a diplomatic political response about what is a technical medical question, right? Like. 
I wasn't sure that that was the best avenue. Like, I get that it's complicated and that you do, like, you know, interdepartmental and interagency diplomacy here is, is a factor. But, like, I don't know that that's the best thing that Canadians could be getting right now is defer- mutual deference and um, sort of a, a united front at all times uh, on everything. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that that's the best thing. Yeah, a little candor I mean, would be appreciated, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's understandable. I think, like, there's this inherent tension, right? Especially when it comes to the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which is, I think, there was a, uh, a CBC yeah, so piece apparently on. now being mulled more actively. Today. But the, the invocation of the Emergencies Act necessarily is in conflict with the provinces. Mm-hmm. And so... The subtext to this entire month basically has been this push and pull between the provinces and the federal government on matters of health and matters of finance. Um, They've had to work closely, but they're also gap-filling for each other, and they can and should be critical of each other. Yeah. The Alberta set up an interim benefit before the CERB, because the administration of the CERB and others were coming too slowly. Mm Um. Provinces are demanding bailout packages for their respective sectors, be it the energy sectors or others. Um, the provinces co-signed a letter altogether saying that they want the federal government to lead lending for them because the Fed lends, or uh, bo- not lending, borrowing rather, uh, because the Fed borrows money at a, ch- at a lower interest rate than the provinces. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, the provinces are publicly calling for what they want from the federal government. But, like so many areas, it always, you know, in Canada, it seems to be largely one way. The provinces virtually never have qualms about demanding what they want from the federal government. But if the federal government, say, someone asks a question about rent, people start screeching <laughs> that this is provincial jurisdiction and the, the federal government cannot use the four-letter R-word um, because it's provincial jurisdiction. It's like... The provinces take every single chance they can get to tell the feds how to do their job and what they want from them. Yeah. Um, but it so very rarely goes the other way. Yes. For, um, for good reason. I mean, I think there there's good political reasons anyway. Like, it's very easy to... Having a bad relationship with the premiers is never helpful. Uh, agreed. As a prime minister. And uh, I think people react somewhat poorly just in a general cultural sense to an idea of an overweening federal government that is constantly sort of grasping for new powers uh, at the expense of the provinces. People feel very strongly tied to their their provinces, especially outside of Ontario. A hundred percent. So there, there's that. But yes, you're right. Like it is it is a one way street. But like we have to kind of remember that in times of crisis that perhaps there should be a little more mutual uh Truth-telling, shall we say. They're just... The federal government needs to preserve the capacity to step on toes when it needs to step on toes. I'm I'm not advocating for a change in day-to-day provincial-federal relationships, and I think there is a good reason why it largely flows one way. Mm -hmm. But none of this precludes the ability of the federal government to step on provincial toes when it needs to step on provincial toes. Yeah. And if that is uh, provinces not... introducing health measures rapidly enough or uh, effectively enough it should step on those toes say more needs to be done here and we're going to assist in this way and here's how we're going to help problem solve 
like the provinces did not hesitate in sending um, individuals to airports when the federal government was deemed to be not uh, even, doing enough even through, municipalities through, did. through CBSA. Yeah, the Montreal uh, public health officials went to Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport because they didn't have confidence in the job that public uh, federal public health officials and the CBSA were doing in terms of vetting incoming travelers or arrivals. Um, so, like, there's there's always a tension there, and it should be a dynamic tension. But the federal government should have the spine to, uh, you know, you use its club when it needs to. Yeah, and even it's like I think the the argument about rent, for instance, is that like, well, the federal government doesn't have the power to to legislate on rents or, or regulate them, and that that's true. Uh, it could have used the Emergencies Act was one method. It could have also just sort of come out and said, look. Here's what we're doing on mortgages. We expect provinces to pick up the other end of the stick on rents. End of story, right? Like that would have been a thing that the federal government could have done. Just launch the ball appropriately into the court where it belongs. But just saying this is a live issue and we expect it to be dealt with would have been totally fine. Like that that was a feasible option. One area uh, I should note of pre- federal slash provincial leadership that, that's worth talking about is uh, Public Safety Canada released a guidance list on essential services. Um, so across the provinces, um, not all provinces have published lists and the list of what are essential services and what businesses are allowed to operate have been very different, not not dramatically so, because I mean pharmacies, grocery stores, etc., all very obvious. Um, but between provinces, some lists have been longer, some have been shorter. Um, the federal government stepped up eventually and said, here's the list that all provinces should sort of use as their, their guiding posts. And I don't know to what degree um, provinces are doing that. The Ontario list got cut back sort of at the same time as that federal list was coming out. Um, those weren't necessarily linked. Um, but it's an example where the federal government is trying to play the coordinating or the coordinating or convening role in bringing together the provinces to unite and sort of be a little more simpatico so we don't have uh, a dozen different lists that are creating conflicts in jurisdictions and areas where like uh, interprovincial areas and things along those lines. Ottawa Gatineau, for instance. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I don't know. Is there anything uh, anything else we want to talk about before we we call our uh, the a short episode? Uh, just just to foreshadow a little bit. Um, now the word's gone out that the legislation will be um, discussed in uh, or is is to be taken up by Parliament on Saturday, uh, which is of course highly unusual. The government gave the legislation to the opposition. Um, early this week, and there's been some wrangling on it. The opposition, I think, broadly is of the view that there should be room for negotiation, and they've they've got some asks in. Uh, the federal government seems to be pushing the urgency card. Yeah. Um, for the most part, uh, the type of benefit the the benefit this is this isn't about the CERB. This is about the emergency wage subsidy, um, which isn't set to be delivered until three to six weeks from now. Was yeah. the talking point. Um, last week, so I guess two to five weeks from now. Um, so the 
opposition sees room to negotiate. That's a fine process point that I think is likely to be lost in media. And I think the likelihood of the chicken wine people jumping on this <laughs> and seeing uh, obstructionism is very high. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, there, there is certainly political risk in this, but fundamentally... Um, there still needs to exist the the capacity for opposition to check the government and to challenge the government and to do all of these things. But this is kind of the problem, right? Needs if you're, to if exist. You're going from emergency legislation to emergency legislation without any sort of interim opportunities for the opposition to make its voice heard, then like that's inevitably what you're going to get, right? Like hostage taking, if you will, is the only tool the opposition functionally has, right? As we've discussed, they have no other avenues for for scrutiny and accountability yes i i mean the, yeah uh, i think it was sheer or one of the conservative spokespeople were talking about like why can't opposition get questions at the pm's daily presser which i think would be somewhat hilarious yeah well i think um, what he said was like he does this every day and gets to have you know questions but like we should have a venue for opposition mps to ask questions right like yes which is to say like having a sort of virtual question period yeah and so i mean this this is probably the last point um to touch on because it certainly has um kicked off a heated debate within the ottawa bubble as to the feasibility (laughs) of a virtual house of commons or not um but I, I think there are merits to the proposal um, in the long run. I am skeptical of the feasibility of the proposal in the short run. I think the, um, the technical capacity isn't necessarily there on short notice to procure, modify, set up, deploy um, something along these lines for 338 MPs across every riding in Canada, yeah. right? Like in... in Cases of this, parliamentary privilege necessitates that you consider the edge cases. So I don't know if the uh, member of parliament for Labrador has a uh, a hardwired connection strong enough for them to be participating without lag or delay. Yeah, I mean, I think realistically there would be a little bit of forbearance for the edge cases right now for the reasons of... It's a weird situation. Parliament is not an institution that allows itself to lenience on rules like this. Like, it's just, it is basically a fundamental right of each MP, like, as as firmly as possible, that you can't just be like, uh, we're going to set up Parliament, but we're okay if you don't have a chance to participate. Like, that's just not how Parliament works. I mean, it is and it isn't, though, right? Like, that kind of stuff happens all the time. It's just that MPs rarely make an issue of it you're you're gonna have mps making an issue of it very like it's um, very possible i i just think that the and it's the forbearance factor here is going to be a little higher than it would be normally it it's also worth noting the skew uh party wise for parties that occupy rural seats versus urban seats and where sure connectivity is likely to be uh strongest right yes um we've seen experimentation um I mean, first time that I'm aware of, of MPs doing uh, committee meetings electronically. And I think committee meetings, depending on how this goes, are likely to be the venue at which um, ministers and the government broadly are being uh, held to account. Yes. Um, Not to say that these committee meetings thus far, audio only, have not had 
um, immense technical challenges. The finance committee meeting was hilarious, if only because 13 officials were on the phone. <laughs> and MPs, liberal MPs, were asking rather basic questions. And it seemed like none of the officials wanted to respond. Um, so after a long pause, uh, Chair Wayne Easter moved on to, you know, other questions. I guess the presumption being that every, uh, all the officials were waiting for someone else to answer the question. Uh, and then an ADM came on the phone, like several minutes later, um, advising that they had tried to connect and they were trying to respond to the question, but they were simply unable to, um, but initially, it appeared incredibly. It just sounded really bad. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What, what about this? Just completely blank. Okay. Very no, good. No, no one wants to answer that question. Hey, moving, moving on. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Just it will be certainly a learning curve for for everyone involved, as life has tended to be in the last couple of weeks for for everyone. And uh, yeah, I guess as we learn today, it will likely to be so for the really the foreseeable future um i'm gonna miss grilling season for sure uh, i am going to uh make the most of grilling season god damn it yeah this is really the uh the living in a shoebox downtown uh devil's bargain here is really uh biting me in the ass i have to say you uh, mocked my suburb palace yes i mean this is this is the deal right so you live downtown you're walking distance of everywhere you want to be but when you can't leave the house, it's kind of like, well, everything's closed, and uh, enjoy you being hit by a car every day if you venture off the sidewalk, <laughs> because Jim Watson doesn't want to close the parking lanes. Ottawa has the worst municipal government in Canada. Like, yeah. bar none. I mean, of any big city, I, I think that's... I, I'm sure everyone's going to write in about their story of like, well, in, in Red Deer, the mayor is bad. Um but I don't know. I think I think Jim Watson's pretty pretty unique. Uniquely horrible. Yes. Um, I guess that'll do it for us. We we made it to forty two minutes. That's pretty respectable. Uh, we all we always manage. We always manage. Always always find something to talk about. Yeah. Um, I guess that'll do it for us this week. Did you have a beer while you were uh, while you were listening? No, I had one earlier in the day though. There you go. Oh, Mister Mister uh, Maundy Thursday here. <laughs> You know, we're going to the long weekend. It was uh, it was a casual conversation, so you know, you have you have a beer. Um, it was one of the collective arts, number eleven. Oh, that that's very uh, good. I do have to say, I, I had one last IPA. night. Very excellent. Yeah, we got this deal on beer. Yeah, dollar seventy a can or something stupid. Le- less than that. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, so, get okay. it if you can find it. I had a. No, it's it's out. Oh, never mind. Uh, sold out that day. <laughs> too bad. I had a, a cider from uh, Revel. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was purple, and it had a uh, duct tape label because apparently they're they're out of labels or something. I don't know. Very nice. Very good, but very tasty stuff. Uh, honestly, I've had a couple of Revel's uh, things the last couple of weeks, and uh, I have to say, strongly recommend. A very interesting cidery. Uh, a lot of really <laughs> weird stuff that tastes good. I get tired of cider after like the first mouthful. Really? I'm like, a, oh, this, do, you, do you find it's too sweet? Yeah, but I've had dry ciders too. I just fatigue of the taste almost immediately. Interesting, huh? I mean, I I I would agree on sweet cider. I don't I don't tend to like sweet drinks at all. Uh, like the drier the better. Uh, so this stuff has been very good for me. But uh, yeah, I I like the dry ciders quite a bit, and I find that it's a little lighter in body than beer. So 
it's not as uh not as much of a commitment in that sense I don't know. give me that stout give me that stout <laughs> you do love your stouts give all right that thick stout well that'll that'll do it for us this week thanks once again for listening uh and with that uh have fun bye bye speaking moistly